If you have your Bibles, if you take them out, turn them on and join me um, in the book of Revelation. It is the last book of the Bible, and so if you want to join me there, we will be in Revelation 19 this morning. As we continue through our sermon series, um, looking at the names of Christ, a sermon series that we have titled, The Name Above All Names, as we recognize that Jesus Christ alone is worthy of our worship, He is worthy of our praise, He is the reason for us to rejoice in this season. Amen? Amen. There's nothing that brings out my inner adjudicator more quickly than watching my children play basketball. Yeah, it's that season. It's basketball. And it doesn't take very long before, as much as I try to uh, contain myself, it isn't long before I'm letting the refs know that they're not doing their job. Just yesterday in Bryant's basketball game, we had a situation near the end of the game where, according to the rules, within the last two minutes of the game, they're supposed to be be able to full court press. And when our kids stole the ball on the wrong side of the court, they called it dead and gave it to the other team. Despite the fact that they immediately started their full court press when they got down to our side. And it was me, as not just me, but many other parents that let the refs know real quick that that was not okay. Our world is obsessed with refing the referees in sports nowadays. I was shocked at this last World Series when the number one headline after those first couple of games wasn't necessarily the score on the board, but the umpire making the calls, his record of balls and strikes being accurate as the most accurate umpire in the league. And baseball's now all about that over-the-shoulder shot from the pitcher. No longer watching the team, but we want to know whether or not the umpire got the call right. Because, let's be real honest, built inside each and every one of us is this sense of right and wrong and a desire to make sure that what is right and righteous takes place and what is wrong is cut out, is punished. We all have an inherent desire to see the wicked punished and the righteous vindicated, and that is a good desire given to us by God, who is the perfect and righteous judge of the universe. And so as people with that sense of moral right and wrong inside of us, we are people who are quick to cry injustice and call it out where we see it. Just spend about 15 minutes on social media, and you will find all kinds of comments and calls and quietings of people that are not living up to others' standards. A problem, however, with this surfaces when the tables get turned. We are the people who are quick to pass judgments on the actions and attitudes of other people, but we are so slow to do so for ourselves. We are so quick to come up with excuses, so quick to blame someone else for our mistakes and shortfalls. We are quick to judge, but we don't like to be judged in return. I mean, probably one of the most famous and most misquoted verses in all the Scripture is from Matthew chapter 7. It doesn't take you very long to start coming up with or having a discussion about what is right or wrong in our culture or in the world, and inevitably someone is most likely going to throw Jesus' words in your face, judge not lest you be judged. 
We throw that out so quickly because the reality is not only do we have that innate sense of moral right and wrong, and we have that inner desire to see the wicked punished and the righteous vindicated, we also know how imperfect we are as judges. We know how inconsistent we are. We know how unreliable we are as judges, and therefore we question the judgment of those that are around us and imposed upon us. But that doesn't answer that internal need and that internal desire, which I said is good and a gift from God and a reflection of his very nature and character, that we want to see the wicked punished and we wanted to see the righteous vindicated. And if there is not someone who has the authority to make that call, then justice will never take place. Which is why we need the promises of Scripture that there is a judge who is worthy of that position. And his name is Jesus. I don't know, I was in a little bit of school rhyme mode as I was thinking through this, but the thought came to mind. It just kind of came together as we look in this verse. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is true. He is the right judge for me and for you. You're welcome. Dr. Seuss at Christmas. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is true. He is the right judge for me and for you. Look with me in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16 this morning. John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Would you pray with me this morning? Father in heaven, thank you that you alone are the righteous and worthy judge of all of the universe. And as such, Lord Jesus, you are worthy of our trust. We can look to you for how it is that we can live faithfully as you set the perfect standard of faithfulness. And when, Heavenly Father, we compare our lives to the one true standard, which is Jesus Christ, and find ourselves wanting, fallen far short of your glory, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this one who judges is the one who bore the judgment that we might be set free from our faults, from our failures, from the death and the damnation that we deserve. So we give you all the glory and the honor and the praise. Guide us and lead us to the truth of the gospel this morning, that we might be moved by your love. And in experiencing your love, let us express your love to one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we have walked through this sermon series together, we've bounced around throughout Scripture 
we began this sermon series looking at two Old Testament names of Jesus Christ in anticipation of his first coming into the, into the world. We saw Jesus in his glory and we saw him in his promise that he is the Prince of Peace and that he is Emmanuel, the one who is God with us. Last week, we honed in on about the time that Jesus was born. But if you'll remember, Advent is not just a time that we remember that Jesus came back then. In the same way that we anticipate the celebration of the birth of Jesus, the season of Advent is also to build within us and remind us that we are to anticipate the fulfillment of the rest of the New Testament and Old Testament promises that Jesus is coming again. Which is why it's so interesting that even when we get to the book of Revelation, the end of the Scriptures, as John sees visions of what is to come, we see Christ in His second advent given names. This morning we see in verse 11 that Jesus on this white horse as the heavens are opened is called faithful and true. It's the only place in all of Scriptures that this is specifically given to Jesus as some kind of names or revelations, if you will, of his character. Now, just as a bit of an understanding, we're not going to dig into everything that is going on in these verses. We're actually really focusing here on the first half of the verses that I read, and next week we'll return to see and study Jesus Christ as the ultimate king, the king of kings and the lord of lords. But nevertheless, so that we kind of understand a little bit of the mystery of where we're at in the book of Revelation, we're at the place near the end of the book when John is bringing all things, or God through John is bringing all things to a close. It's after the time of God's judgment through the tribulation. And John, if you back up just a little bit into 17 and 18, John hears the heavens rejoicing about the sure and complete end and downfall of Babylon and all of the enemies of both Jesus Christ and his church who have persecuted his people. John uses that prophetic past tense. It's something that hasn't taken place yet, and yet it is so guaranteed he's able to speak about it as though it already has. And he hears the heavens rejoicing in the fall of Babylon. He hears the heavens inviting the people of God to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then here, as the final conflict is right at its cusp, John sees a new thing. He sees the heavens opened, and he sees Jesus in all of his glory. And John, we know that it is Jesus because John has described Jesus in very similar terms all the way back in Revelation chapter 1, where we meet Jesus with eyes that are aflame with fire. We meet him with this head with many crowns. We see a, a sword coming out of his mouth. But in John chapter 1, Jesus in this sense is hidden as he walks among and is in the midst of his churches, the seven golden lampstands. And he begins to assess each and every one of them and speak to them and call them to perseverance through the days that are about to come and the difficulties that they are about to face. But he exists in this spiritual sense where he is with his people. But now, in Revelation 19, we see him there manifested in all of his glory as he is physically revealed and returning to earth to make all things right. And as John beholds him, he says he is called faithful and true. Jesus is faithful. 
And Jesus is true. And it's his faithfulness and his true character that make him the right judge. Jesus, first off, let's look at this idea that he is faithful. The word that John uses here is that same word that all of the concepts of trust, belief, and faith throughout the New Testament is built off of. Specifically, in the way that he uses it here, it communicates that Jesus is reliable. He is someone who elicits a belief or a trust. He is someone who is consistent all of the time. As explorers began moving across the West and they came to um, um, the play, uh, they came west, they found a geyser that was so consistent that they named it Old Faithful. And to this day, Old Faithful has remained consistent with, I think, over a million recorded explosions. I don't know the lack of a better word. Eruptions. As it consistently, within somewhere between 44 minutes and two hours, in this constant interval, it is going to erupt. So consistent that at one point I read that the American soldiers who were there at the time used it as a washing machine. And they would throw their clothes in there and wait for it to erupt. And when it would erupt in all of its steam and all of its power, it would clean their clothes. And because it was so consistent, they gave it this name, Old Faithful, which is stuck to this day. Because of its consistency, its reliability, something that they could almost time their watches next to. You see, one of the problems that we have with humans judging one another is our inconsistency. What we will call often call hypocrisy, that we will so easily hold people to a standard that we know we can't keep ourselves or that we don't keep ourselves. And when that becomes flagrant, where we are imposing upon people the very standards that we know that we can't keep, that we don't keep, or that we flagrantly break, we are accused of hypocrisy and rightfully so. Because we are people who are not living up to or holding one another or even ourselves to a consistent standard. And so human judgments are inconsistent. Human judgments are unfaithful. Jesus, however, has never been inconsistent. By his very nature, his very character, Jesus is faithful. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, we read this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Just like God his Father, who he is the perfect reflection of, Jesus never changes. And if he is someone who never changes, that is the epitome of being consistent. That he will never change. That his word yesterday is the same word that's going to be true tomorrow. And what is true tomorrow will be the same 500 years from now if the Lord tarries. And what, was, what would be true 500 years from now is the same that was true 5,000 years ago. Jesus is perfectly consistent all of the time. It's part of his nature, but it's also part of his nature as the one who fulfilled all of the Old Testament promises about a coming Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 11, God prophesies or promises, and Isaiah prophesies about this shoot that would come forth from the stump of Jesse, a branch from its roots that shall bear fruit. He says, the Lord, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be the fear of the Lord. 
He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge. Jesus isn't swayed by the inconsistencies of this world. Jesus isn't swayed by what he sees and what he hears. He's not like us who are so quick to believe the very first report that we don't actually stop and ask the question, let me get this from another perspective. Jesus is one who doesn't have to get perspectives from either side. Instead, Jesus is the one who judges with righteousness. Verse 5 of of Isaiah 11, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah, again, in chapter 42 says, I have put my spirit upon this Messiah. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice. As the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament expectations and God's promises of what the Messiah would be, Jesus, by his nature, is faithful. But not only that, in his life as a human being, as he walked among us, he proved himself faithful in the fact that he was perfectly obedient to his Father. There was never a moment that Jesus did not do exactly what the Lord expected of him. In fact, he was able to pray in John 17, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Hebrews chapter 3, the author of Hebrews there, describes and compares and contrasts Jesus to Moses. And he says Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. But, he says in verse 6, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Therefore, the conclusion from that passage of Scripture is that Jesus is better than Moses. As faithful as Moses might have been, he fell far short of God's glorious standard. But Jesus Christ never did. He was faithful to all that God placed upon him. He was faithful even in the face of trials and temptations and difficulties. And in the places where you and I fail, Hebrews chapter 2, he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews also tells us that he was one who was tempted but was without sin. There was never a moment that Jesus was faithless where he failed. But Jesus is also faithful in all of his promises. His promises of everlasting life. His promises that he would not leave us nor forsake us, but that he would send a helper for us. John 14, 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And Paul picks that up in Romans chapter 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Jesus promised that he would not leave us alone, but would give us one who would point us to Christ, who would lead us into truth. And that one is the Holy Spirit. And by the testimony of the book of Acts and the early church and every believer since who has been indwelled by the Holy Spirit, Jesus' words proved true and faithful. And his promises of the future are faithful as well. As he promises, Matthew 16, verse 27, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to all that he has done. John sees that here. The one who is faithful to keep his own word will come as the righteous ruler who is the perfect judge. And he will never hold us to a standard that he has not already met. 
He is not inconsistent. He is not hypocritical. He will never judge us inconsistently or hypocritically. Instead, he is the one and only judge who can perfectly administer judgment because he alone has perfectly kept the law. And that's the beautiful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he didn't merely keep the law for his own sake and because it was part of his nature and it was because he wanted to keep his promises. He kept the law for our sake. That his faithful record might stand for our failing record. That as he took the place as the substitute, as he hung on that cross, not only that he might bear our punishment, but that he might give us and clothe us in his righteousness forever and forever. And because of his faithfulness, his faithfulness doesn't ebb and flow based upon our successes and based upon our failures. Instead, according to Paul in 2 Timothy 2.13, Christ is faithful to believers in every circumstance. If we are faithless, Jesus remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Jesus will always be faithful as he has always been faithful. But Jesus is not only faithful, Jesus is true. The word that John uses here to describe Jesus faithful and true describes something, or in this case, someone who is genuine, someone who is valid, someone who exists in a proper relationship with God. Jesus Christ is true. You see, for justice to be real, it must not only be faithful, consistent, reliable. Justice must also be right. See, there's, did you know that there is a difference between the north that your If you pull out a compass, right, and your compass works off of mag, the magnetical pull of the earth, the north that that compass points to, should you follow that in all of its trajection, trajectory, will not actually bring you to the North Pole. Because there is a difference between magnetic north and true north. True north is determined and based upon its direction and its, its location based on land masses, like continents that very rarely move. And as such, true north sits where it is. And if you wanted to go up there, it would be hard for you to walk around at the North Pole anyway because it's just ice and water and everything else. Magnetic north, however, is dependent upon the magnetic charge that is built by the magma flowing within the earth. And as such, magnetic north is constantly moving. It's never stable. Now, both are very important. But because magnetic north is constantly changing, maps must constantly be updated about every five to six years. Because it is not consistent. Because it's not true. And as is very clear from any pilot or navigator, if my compass degree is off by just a slight degree here, it may not make much of a difference in the next 10, 15, 20 miles. But in the next 200, 300, or 1,000, I will be extremely lost and way off from where I intended to go to begin with. I instead need a standard that never changes. That standard, Scripture tells us, is Jesus himself. 
You see, the problem with human judgment is that our standards are often not set. They fluctuate. And the things that we often find so easily offensive and that we then judge other people to may not necessarily be tied to universal truths. Instead, the very things that we find most offensive may oftentimes be tied to cultural preferences and family, fun- or family histories and certain ways that we oftentimes are brought up or our imperfect understanding, interpretation, or even application of the law or of God's Word. We have the responsibility to discern which is it. What are the irreducible, unchangeable truths of who we are as Christians and as a church? What are the doctrines that we will never let go of? What are the faith practices that will never bend or change? And then what are the things that we can hold loosely to as we attempt to contextualize the gospel of Jesus Christ to a culture that is rapidly changing? Is there a way that we can take the rapidly changing world around us, specifically through technology and the digital resources that are available, are we going to somehow contextualize the gospel through that, or are we going to stick to the way it's always been done? Just as an example, what are the things that we cannot budge on, and what are the things that instead are tied to personal preferences, upbringing, cultural manifestations, The subjective interpretation of the law, and especially of God's Word, is oftentimes, I have found, what people push back against and say, or are talking about when they say there's no such thing as objective truth. That your truth and my truth, though they are different, as truth is subjective, and my experience and your experience are each and every one valid. When in reality, that is not the case. There is a truth that is objective, that is real. And the difference between real truth and almost truth is as deadly as the difference trying to navigate by magnetic north versus true north. We might walk closely together here and now for a little bit of time, but in the end, it might lead one to heaven and the other to eternal damnation and separation from God. It is that important. And so we must know the standard of truth. And that standard of truth is Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus would later say in John 14, 6, one that you are probably very familiar with, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John goes on in this same vision. He sees that Jesus is called the Word of God. Jesus Christ alone is the perfect manifestation of the revelation of God. The Word spoken by God. As he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. How did God create? Through the spoken Word. How does God reveal Himself to you and to me? Through the spoken and through the written Word. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. God's Word, God's power, God's strength, God's character with flesh on. 
It was Jesus who would tell his disciples, if you've seen the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the perfect manifestation of God's character and might. He alone is truth. And we must know him. And the good news is that he has made himself known. And in doing so, he has made known the person and the power and the presence of God. He does that not only through his person and through his life, but he does that also through his word. Little w word, not capital W word, which is Jesus. As Jesus says, right as he is crucified in John 17, sanctify, or as he prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Luke 24, 27, Jesus says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he began interpreting to these disciples all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. That all of scripture points to Jesus. All of scripture teaches us about Jesus. All of scripture reveals our need for Christ. All of scripture and every character in scripture either is used as someone that we can compare with Christ or we can contrast with Christ. In every single step, in every single stage, God's Word points to Jesus. Just look up in verse 10 of chapter 19. The true spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. The purpose of the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, is not to make much of Himself. Jesus explicitly says that the Spirit will point people to Christ. And so where and when you end up in faith traditions where there is this unhealthy focus on the Holy Spirit that doesn't ultimately track through the Holy Spirit to Jesus is not actually honoring the Holy Spirit. Because the spirit of prophecy and the Holy Spirit's purpose is to point us to and reveal to us Christ and make much of Jesus. And Jesus points us to the Father. But not only is He the truth, we are to know. He also tells us that he's the truth by which we will be judged. Matthew chapter 7 verse 23 and that section around these verses are perhaps some of the scariest verses in all of the Bible for me. And proof positive that of what I've talked about here about the difference between Christ's truth and subjective truth or less than truth is that in that passage of Scripture, Jesus talks about the coming judgment. And there are those who approach Jesus in that time, and they want to come into heaven. And Jesus says, depart from me, for I never knew you. And what is their response? You don't understand, Jesus. We've done a whole bunch of stuff for you. We've preached in your name. We've cast out demons in your name. We've done all kinds of things in your name. I don't know about you, but based on how my experience, casting out demons, that's like extra credit level Christian stuff. Right? I don't even have an experience of coming up with a demon and casting out a demon. If you do, I'd love to hear about it. We've preached in your name. We've cast out demons in your name. And Jesus says, yet I never knew you. And it's that relationship to the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Brothers and sisters, there are many people sitting in pews in comfy blue chairs in churches all around the world who need to take to heart the warning that Jesus gives there. Gathering in Jesus' name, preaching in Jesus' name, performing miracles in Jesus' name, doing things for Jesus is not necessarily the same as being in a relationship with Jesus. And for all those who are living the religious lifestyle, keeping all of the rules and dotting all of the I's and crossing all of the T's and in doing the best that they can to be the best little behaved Christian that they possibly can, and their faith and their trust is in their own record of righteousness and not in a deep daily dependence upon Jesus Christ experiencing His love over and over and over and over again. The day that the sky rips open and this rider on the white horse appears, that blood that is on His robe is not good news for you. It's not good news for those who have blatantly rejected him. This is the rider coming in judgment, not in redemption and grace. And that is something that is weighty and heavy and something that must sit upon each and every single one of us. But what we can know is that this one who is faithful, this one who is true, is nevertheless the right judge. He's the right judge for me. He's the right judge for you. Because it says that this one who is faithful, this one who has come, who is coming in judgment, who is going to not only destroy the enemies of Christ and His church, but judge the living and the dead, this one does so in righteousness. He does what is right and what is pure and what is true. He judges and makes war based upon a perfect standard that you and I are not qualified or equipped to adjudicate. He and He alone is that perfect judge. And He will do what is right. The day that I came to a confidence in my relationship with Jesus Christ was unique. Maybe you're hearing, you're, you still struggle consistently with that question. Am I? Am I not? And you wrestle with a doubt of, am I really saved? And I don't know. I remember there was a period of time, I think I was in upper high school, maybe college, I was wrestling with those doubts. And a thought came to my mind that gave me the single greatest amount of peace that I've ever had, and I've never questioned my salvation again. So I heard in my heart a still small whisper that said, if I die tonight and I don't wake up in heaven, then I'm there because I deserve to be and not because God is not faithful. And there was a clear confidence in my heart that said, I trust God no matter the outcome. My journey is not your journey. Maybe God will bring you peace in your salvation in a different way. But there was an inner confidence that I had that God will never do what is wrong. And even if I wake up after spending 50 years preaching the gospel, 
and I wake up in hell, God is just and God is good. And I am there because I got it wrong, not because he is not faithful. And that's a hard truth for some people to hear, but it brought so much peace to my life that I could know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I could trust in God. No matter what happens in this life, John is writing this to a group of Christians to prepare them for everything that is about to go wrong in the world. And it's a message to you and to me, a message that is to be obeyed and followed, and a message that is supposed to be an encouragement and a preparation for the absolute worst of times. Charles Dickens doesn't have nothing on the best of times and the worst of times. Read Revelation and you will find the worst of times are yet to come. And John is writing and Jesus is speaking through John to Christians to urge them again and again and again through all seven of those letters, hold fast to the end. Cling to your faith. The one who finishes and fights the good fight is the one who receives the reward. The one who endures to the end, no matter how chaotic the world may get. The one who clings to their faith, even when the unjust and the wicked seem to prosper. And the Antichrist comes to power. And the church is ridiculed and sent back into basements and dark caves. And Christians are murdered left and right, even in the midst of that darkness, God is faithful, and the perfect judge will come. And I can trust in him. And I don't have to be judge, jury, and executioner in my life. Because he will judge perfectly. And so I can rejoice. And you can rejoice. As the psalmist invites us to in Psalm 96, 11 through 13, let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. And so we have reason to rejoice in the coming of Jesus Christ. We have reason to rejoice in his faithfulness. We have reason to rejoice in the fact that he is true. We have reason to rejoice in the fact that he is the perfect judge. And he will make all things right. But the key to our rejoicing is resting in that perfect judge. Our life can continue to be chaotic as we wrestle for control, busy to try to pass the right laws, say the right things, do the right stuff, and all of that is important. But we will never be able to legislate people's hearts. Christ and Christ alone changes hearts. And we can trust in Him knowing that he is faithful and that he is true. And in his strength and by his grace, be as faithful to him as we possibly can. That starts with acknowledging first and foremost, he is the righteous, faithful, true judge. And I am not. And since I'm not and he is, I'm going to put myself my family, my church, my city, my state, 
this nation, my world, in his hands. Because he'll do a whole lot better job with it than me. Will you trust in Jesus today and tomorrow? Will you trust in Christ for your heart and future? By believing on him as your savior, will you trust in Christ with your life and your tomorrow as your sanctifier in his grace and in his truth?